Section 10 of Stories from the Detectives Album by Waif Wanda, also known as Mary Fortune. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. The Rosary of the Dead Few would have credited on seeing the weather-stained scattered buildings of slabs and bark that lay under the spur of Barra Range that they were the principal homestead of that splendid property known as Cahir Convelt Station. Even to the passer-by, on the main road from Berrimer Township to Prasby, they looked so old and neglected as to be apparently almost uninhabitable, but, on closer inspection, a visitor would find sufficient rough bush comfort amid a good deal of decay and not a little dirt. One afternoon in November, a man was riding up toward the homestead on the ill-defined track that led from the main road. He was a tall, fair man of about thirty, with a serious, thoughtful face and a quiet manner. Just now he appeared uneasy and anxious, not to say somewhat annoyed, and it was with more alacrity than was usual with him that he dismounted in the yard, around which were grouped rough tenements of various uses, from the stable to the outbuildings where two of the boundary riders slept. Without waiting to knock, the visitor to Cahir Convelt entered the low, open doorway and found himself in the presence of a stout, bustling woman of about fifty-five, with a quantity of iron-grey hair and a deep-set, keen-grey eye. She was coarsely dressed in dark wincey, and had her skirts tucked up and her arms bare, and she was kneading a quantity of dark-coloured dough on the discoloured kitchen table. "'Hello, Tom,' she cried. "'What wind drove you here the day? I thought you were off to praise be.' "'So I was, mother, but something I heard on the road turned me.' the man said as he laid his hat on a rough bench and seated himself beside it. "'Something you heard?' And as the woman repeated the words, she looked sharply in her son's face. "'Fay, it must be something queer that would turn you back when you know the bad luck that's in it.' "'There was bad enough luck in what I heard,' he replied. "'Mother, it won't do for you to have Turnbull here the way he is any longer. The whole country is talking about it and laughing at you. He's boss of the whole station and makes no secret of it. Mother!' mind what you're about mind what i'm about and well able am i to mind it without your help tom farrell she cried angrily as she turned her red face toward her son and with a fierce movement stripped the clinging dough from her hands and arms do you think i'm not old enough to take care of myself without shepherding who owns kerkomvelt sir is it me or the gossiping paupers that open their dirty mouths into me own son's ears if he was a man he'd shut their throats with their own broken teeth I wish I could, mother, but no man can deny the truth. It's plain to see that Turnbull is trying to soap you over and wants to be made master of Cahir Convelt. Sure you never could believe that a young man like that would have any real liking for you, mother. It's only the money. God forbid that you'd marry anyone that would count every day you lived after too long till he got what he sold himself for. Sold himself? The woman was almost speechless with rage. One would think I was a cripple or bedridden. Tom Farrell. Thank God I'm a stout, able woman, and to the fore as far as me own business is concerned. I made a good wife to your father, young man, and for why, if it suits me, shouldn't I make myself comfortable with what he left me? Aye, and if a man likes me, why shouldn't he have what I'd give him? It's jealous you are, Tom Farrell, and frightened you would be done out of your share when I die. But I might live happy after if you're under the sod yourself. "'As you take it that way, I'll say but a few words more, mother,' Farrell said as he rose to his feet. "'You are mistaken about Cahir Convolt. It is not yours, but mine. You wouldn't have heard this now, mother, only for what you said. Two days before my father died, he gave me a codicil to his will, leaving me every acre of the property after your death, or after your second marriage. He didn't trust you, mother, and though I'm well contented with my own place, if you put Turnbull in my father's place, Neither you nor he will find one week's home at Cahir Convelt. The woman was stunned for a moment. The red face grew streaky, the placid cheek sunken, her eyes glared at her son as if at some terrible spectre, and then she uttered a cry of horror and fell on her knees at his feet. "'Oh, Tom! Oh, Tom! For the love of God, don't say it!' she whispered hoarsely. "'If he knows it, he'll kill me. Promise you won't tell Tom. I'm your mother, your own mother!' "'Get up, mother, for mercy's sake.' And he raised her to her feet. "'You know very well I wouldn't take a pound, nor a pound's worth from you, unless you let yourself be fooled with that schema. Cahir Convelt will be yours while you live. 
only send that man to the right about and at once i can't she sobbed i can't it's too late tom how did i know why didn't you tell me before and now it's too late too late yes too late we were married at prasby last month oh what'll i do he'll be the death of me when he knows the truth married a spasm of mental pain exhibited itself on the manly serious face of thomas farrell this accounted for the self-assertion of his mother's employé of which he had heard so much and which everyone so much resented married so after all he had done wrong in hiding his dead father's distrust of his silly widow oh mother what have you done but it is too late now be the death of you surely you are not afraid of this man you have let fool you i don't know tom cried the sobbing woman as she mopped her red face with the corner of her apron i can't help seeing he's turned again me lately and isn't so particular what he says to vex me god forgive me if i wrong him but ever since he got me to make the will he's short and crooked with me make a will echoed farrell yes he never let me alone till i did it tom and he has that will he has of course you left himself everything in it no not entirely he made me leave you the small section marchin would your own tom ashore but after all what harm was it sure he'd be no better off while i'm alive it's a hard thing for a man to say to his mother but i must say it to you this day you're a foolish woman though you are my mother tom farrell said as he turned toward the door there's many would say to you as you made your bed so lie in it but tom farrell's not the man to do that paul turnbull will know the truth before that sun sets and he'll never sleep another night under this roof oh tom will you ruin me entirely for the love of god let me tell him myself if it must be told i'll tell you he'll kill me if he thinks i deceived him a purpose kill you and how long do you think he meant to let you live after you made that will that suited him i tell you mother that turnbull has the shadow of bad deeds in his face if you are afraid of him more reason for him to go and you can come over home with me till he's gone at all events he'll know the truth from me this day the woman trembled like a leaf at the fearfully suggestive words of her son and rocked herself to and fro in an agony of wretchedness and terror all at once some glimmering of reason began to penetrate through the coat of self-conceit which is in many women almost impenetrable even with her fifty and five years mrs turnbull as she may now be called had an imperishable opinion of her own personal charms and notable housekeeping abilities and it was only in connecting her own acknowledgments of her new husband's failing flattery with the hints of his probable bad deeds from her son's lips that she began to realise the possibility of her own danger once realised however and it rushed to the surface all the cowardly feelings of her weak nature and she shuddered as though she felt a knife at her throat in the name of mary don't lave me tom she pleaded let me go right back to your place before you tell him at all sure i won't be long gathering a few bits of things together before tom farrell had time to reply a man dashed up to the door on a nearly blown horse and dismounted and there was something in his face as he crossed the threshold that caught farrell's penetrating gaze and held it clark looked from the face of his mistress to that of her son and then his eyes fell to the ground and from one to the other of his shifting feet is anything wrong tom farrell asked sharply yes and the speaker looked uneasily at mrs turnbull from under his low dark brows i'm sorry to say that turnbull has met with a bad fall from his horse i thought to warn the missus sooner but i had to ride to kells after the doctor and they're bringing poor turnbull up now there they are at the gates is he much hurt farrell asked as he looked toward the spring cart that could now be seen slowly approaching the homestead with two or three men escorting it he seems to be badly hurt but the doctor hasn't seen him yet here's dr margrove riding up now mrs turnbull stood like a woman turned to stone was she sorry that the man they had been speaking of was badly hurt or did she draw a breath of relief in recognising the hope that for a time at least he should be unable to injure her no matter what unwelcome news should be imparted to him no one watching her at that moment could have replied to the question she turned white and red alternately and hastened outside to meet the slow procession as it stopped in front of the door and her son tom followed her they let down the tall board and the man clark 
who had in some way prepared his mistress of Cahirkenvault for the accident, began, with the assistance of others, to draw the injured man from the bottom of the cart where he lay. He was a tall, dark-complexioned man, of two or three and thirty, but with such a heavy beard and moustache that under his black hair little was visible, save a pair of awfully keen grey eyes that wandered from one to the other of those who surrounded him with a quick suspicion-hinting look. To the hasty inquiries of his as yet unacknowledged wife, he replied shortly, "'I feel no pain, none whatever,' and it was only on recognising Tom Farrell that a hot flush darkened what could be seen of his face. Between Farrell and the fancied heir of Cahirkenvault there was, and had always been, a bitter, though unexpressed, antagonism. He was carried inside and laid on a couch in the principal room of the homestead, still declaring he felt no pain, and when the doctor, who immediately arrived, examined him, he found no bruises or apparent contusions, only an utter limp helplessness of the lower limbs that puzzled and made him look serious. "'How did it happen?' he asked, as his fingers rested on Turnbull's wrist. "'My horse shied at a stump in the big paddock where Clark and I were running in cattle, and I was thrown.' "'On your head?' "'No, I think something fell on my back, but I was stunned or something. At all events, Clark says it was my back.' "'Yes,' volunteered Clark, who stood by. "'I heard the fall and turned. He was lying on his back, but couldn't keep his feet when I lifted him. His legs seemed dead-like.' "'And you've no pain?' "'None. Not a bit.' "'Well, that's good so far, and no bones are broken. You can move your arms and hands.' "'Oh, yes.' "'Without pain?' "'Yes, I have no pain, I tell you.' The doctor, after a few more questions, left the room to give some instructions to Mrs. Turnbull, or, as she was yet called, Mrs. Farrell. Tom followed him, and put, on his own part, a few queries to the medical gentleman. "'What do you think of the man's state, doctor? Is he seriously hurt?' "'I don't at all like the symptoms, Farrell. I'm afraid the lower limbs are paralysed. And what does that mean? It means the spine is injured. The man may never recover the use of his limbs, or he may die. It depends on the extent of the injury. I shall be able to give you a more decided opinion in a few hours.' The woman had stood and listened to Dr. Margrove's dictum, with a scared and awed face, yet, strange to say, an expression of something like relief was admitted in the sigh she gave as he mounted his horse and rode away. Then she looked eagerly into her son's serious face. "'You won't tell him now, Tom, ashore?' she asked softly. "'Not yet, at all events, mother. I couldn't turn him out as he is, and, at all events, you're safe while he's so helpless. There, he's calling you. You'd better go to him.' And he followed his mother again to the side of the invalid. The man, Clark, was still with him, and feigning to be arranging the pillow that was under Turnbull's head. "'Are you keeping easy, Paul?' the woman asked, as she bent over him. "'Yes. What does the doctor say, Bridget? I want to know exactly what he says behind my back.' Mrs. Farrell, as I will continue to call her, looked uneasily at her son, and so evidently hesitated. Then Tom replied plainly, "'There's no use hiding the truth, mother. Dr. Margrove says that he's afraid your limbs are paralysed, Turnbull, that your spine is injured. If that's true, I'll be a cripple for life.' "'Yes, if you lived.' returned Tom Farrell with emphasis. "'Ah, he thinks I may not live, eh?' "'He thinks it possible. You'd better prepare for the worst, Turnbull.' "'I had. Bridget, come here. You'd better tell Tom about our marriage. As I'm to lie here helpless, it's as well everyone should know that I have the right.' Farrell's face flushed up in spite of the manly control he held over himself, but he met Turnbull's deep-set eye with a firm, steady gaze. "'I know all about that already,' he replied. "'But we needn't talk of it now. "'When you are all right, if ever you are, Paul Turnbull, "'we'll settle all about that business.' "'Aye,' said the prostrate man, with a grin of enjoyment, "'that, under the circumstances, seemed almost diabolical. "'I was afraid you wouldn't like that news, Tom. "'But, helpless as I am, and crippled as I am, "'it's too late now to deny that I'm master of Cahirkenvault.' "'No, you're not, Paul Turnbull. Not yet.' In spite of his reason and determination, Farrell's eyes flashed fire as he made this energetic denial of his foolish mother's husband's claims, but dreading his own feelings, he had no sooner spoken than he hastily passed through the doorway to the kitchen. "'What the devil does he mean?' cried Turnbull furiously. 
Look out, Mrs. Turnbull. I'll not lie here and be bullied by any man, son or no son. What else can a helpless man do? asked the man clerk in a low tone. To hear you talk, one would think you forgot you were badly paralysed, and that to save your life or strike a blow, you couldn't take one step to that door. Ah, uh, yes, I forgot, the invalid exclaimed with a groan. I forgot. God help me. What can I be now but a burden, where I thought to be a comfort and a help? You'll never be a burden, Paul, the weak woman said, as she dissolved again in tears, and caressed him. And you mustn't mind, Tom, for you know, darling, it's natural he'd be angry and disappointed, thinking Cahirkinvelt his own, mostly. And so, with what she considered a very venial duplicity, she attempted to soothe the ruffled plumage of the man she had, but one short hour ago, dreaded with a mortal dread. A few days passed without recording any material change in the apparent sufferer. Tom Farrell visited Cahirkinvolt frequently, and, in his silent way, took keen note of all that passed there. He saw that his mother was anxious and nervous and tearful, yet with no anxiety for the recovery of her younger husband. Farrell was a keen judge of human nature, by very instinct, as it were, and if he guessed that Mrs. Turnbull only dreaded the invalid's recovery as the loss of the one shield between her and certain misery, if not death itself, he was the last man to wonder at feeling so natural under the circumstances. As for Turnbull himself, he reclined hour after hour of the long days in the deep invalid's chair which had been brought from Prasby for his comfort, and, with his helpless limbs propped up on pillows and cushions, and his head raised easily, he watched every movement of the household with eyes that seemed to have become inheritors, and untiring inheritors, of the lost vigour of his paralysed limbs. Poor Bridget Farrell, as she longed to think herself yet, felt that, moved where she would in the three chambers, the sick man's eyes commanded through the open doors, she was under a watch as intolerable as it was terrible to her. Her face got a drawn look of pallor, her late two rosy cheeks like suddenly shrivelled parchment. Her faded eyes had a hunted look in them, and at times the sound of her husband's voice made her tremble like a leaf. Something of his mother's state Farrell saw and recognised, and he made it his business one day to meet Dr. Margrove on his way to Cahirkinvolt, to see if he could not put a stop to it in some way or other. The doctor was jogging along steadily within a couple of miles of the station, when, from a crossroad, he was joined by Farrell. These two men had a thorough respect for each other, though occupying such different positions, Tom being a married man with a small family, in whom the doctor had been frequently professionally interested. "'Ah, Farrell, on your way to the station too, I suppose?' "'Yes, but I've been watching for you, doctor. I want to speak to you. Nothing wrong at the home, I hope.' "'No, they're all hearty, thank God. I want to speak to you about Cahirkinvolt. What do you think of Turnbull's case, doctor?' "'Well, I don't know what to think of it, Tom. And that's the truth, though it's not every medical man would own such a truth. Nor, indeed, would I own it except to yourself, for I know who I am speaking to. And so do I, doctor, and that's the very reason I made up my mind to open my mouth to you. I'm uneasy about my mother's state at Cahirkinvolt, and I want your advice about it.' ah she did a very foolish thing in marrying that turnbull tom but it's too late now to mend that matter at her time of life to throw away such a property on such a man was the act of a mad woman she's thrown away nothing but herself doctor cahirkinvelt is not hers to throw away you astonish me farrell as he lifted his serious grey eyes to his companion's face ay i dare say but turnbull himself will be even more astonished for he doesn't know the truth yet the truth is this. I hold a codicil to my father's will that he got executed the last day we were in Presby together. In that codicil, a second marriage takes away even my mother's life interest in Cahirkinvelt, and, in any case, gives it to me or mine at her death. Does your mother know this, Tom? the doctor asked, with apparent interest. She does now, but I only told her the very day Turnbull got hurt when she told me that, in spite of all my warnings, she had married him. I declared then that he should not sleep another night under my father's roof. But how could I turn a dying man out? Doctor, I am certain as I stand here that Paul Turnbull is a man black-hearted as sin. Ever since I saw him blind the poor little Rowan mare, I wouldn't put any deed past him. When was that? One day last summer, I was crossing to Shanks for the loan of a crosscut, and came on him holding the mare by the bridle, and beating her about the head with the butt-end of his loaded whip. 
I'll never forget it. He burst both the poor little animal's eyeballs and kept beating her, with the blood and sight running over his hand as he rained down the blows. It was just after that time Shank's place was stuck up, and I carried a revolver about me, which was a lucky thing for the poor beast, as I put her out of her pain with a bullet through the brain. I told Paul Turnbull my mind at the time, so he knows me, and I know him. "'He has a bad expression of face, most truly,' said Dr. Margrove. "'And now what I want to know is, if Turnbull is fit to be moved,' continued Farrell with a determined air. "'My mother is fading visibly since he's hurt, and I'm sure he's holding some sort of terrorism over her. It's time that he was told the truth, that he hasn't a right to a bit or a breath at Cahirkenveldt. Of course, my mother I will always find home and plenty for, but for him not a crust. He will neither live nor die at Cahirkenveldt, if I can help it. It is a serious matter, Farrell, returned the medical man, after a thoughtful pause. Let me advise you to leave matters as they are a day or two longer. I am daily expecting a friend up to recruit, a man who has made paralysis an especial study. I should like to have his opinion of Turnbull's case. The paralysis is apparently extending. Yesterday one arm was also helpless, yet, strange to say, there is no coldness of the lost limbs, only a sort of numb limpness as far as I can understand. "'Well, I suppose I must stand it for a couple of days more,' Farrell returned with a gloomy air. "'But it's deuced hard.' "'What is hard, Tom? What is it that is so difficult of endurance? Is it the being obliged to act a lie, as it were, in treating a perhaps dying man as the master of Cahirkenveldt? Or is there something you are hiding from me?' "'There is something I am trying to hide from myself, doctor. A dread that I couldn't put into words if I tried.' What did a young man like that marry the poor foolish old woman at all for? And having married her, why did he never let her rest a day or night till she made a will in his favour? There's the question I ask you. And it is one scarcely worthy of you, Tom Farrell, Dr. Margrove answered quickly. I would try and get such suspicions out of my head if I was you. At all events, the man is helpless now, utterly helpless, and unable to injure a dog with his own hand. So well, Farrell replied sternly. Let it drop, Tom, let it drop. I tell you, I don't like the turn our conversation has taken. Send him from Cahirkenveldt as soon as common charity will admit, if you will. But, in the meantime, try and think less evil of him, knowing how greatly he might be wronged in your thoughts. Are you coming up? Yes. They had reached the turning toward the homestead, and in a few moments alighted at the door. Tom's mother was there to meet them, her face whitely and with dark shadows around her eyes. Her blue lips trembled as she spoke, and the ready tears filled her faded eyes. "'Well, Mrs. Turnbull, how's our patient to-day?' "'No better, doctor, no better. He hasn't the use of one finger now.' "'Still, his appetite is good, and he sleeps.' "'Oh, yes, sir, he sleeps.' "'You don't look well yourself, my good woman. We'll be having you knocked up next. You must get someone to help you with this night watch.' I suppose you're getting no rest. Oh, yes, doctor. Clark sat up with Paul last night, so I was in bed the whole night. But I couldn't sleep. Sleep seems gone from me somehow. I can't help fancying that there's a corpse in the house at night. When I open my eyes and see him lying there like one dead, for an int me, the breath seems to lave me. The poor woman almost whispered all this, and with such an appealing look at Tom that it haunted him years after. Your nerves are upset. Dr. Margrove said, and I'll send you a composing draught. But why don't you close your bedroom door so that you can't see Turnbull? He won't let me. But come inside. He'll be angry. With a resolute and suspicious expression of countenance, Farrell followed his mother and Dr. Margrove to the sitting-room, where the invalid lay on a folding couch. His shoulders and head were so elevated by cushions and pillows that, as he faced the two doorways of egress, he could see every act of importance in the principal apartments of the homestead, as well as watch every movement. He was fully dressed, and the almost unnatural yellow of his face contrasted unpleasantly with the snowy whiteness of his well-got-up shirt-front, and the dark weight of his heavy beard. A vicious gleam from his eyes in the direction of his wife was intercepted by Tom Farrell, under whose frowning gaze Turnbull flinched slightly as his eyes fell. "'Well, how do you find yourself to-day?' was the doctor's question, as he made the usual professional movement towards Turnbull's wrist. "'Worse. My other arm's gone. Look here, doctor. I want to know the plain English of this. 
Am I going to be a cripple here for the remainder of my life? If I am, I may as well make my mind up to it. That's all. I can't answer you that question, Turnbull. At least not just now. I confess, and I have just confessed to Farrell, that your case puzzles me. The symptoms are very odd and unusual. But you must keep up your hopes. I expect to get some of the best advice from an eminent medical man who— I'll have no more advice. I'll have no eminent medical men here. Mind what I tell you, Bridget. If another doctor crosses this door, I'll— What'll you do? What'll you do? asked Tom interrupting the violent man with something of a sneer as turnbull who had partly raised his head let it fall back again on the pillows the man's face and expression had been for the moment that of a man beside himself with rage the couch on which he lay shook from head to foot a fact which was not lost upon some of the observers it's true tom farrell though it's not a man's place to remind me of it under my own roof i can do nothing though i might wish this minute for one hour's strength in my right hand if I had, you wouldn't stand there long and mock me. Hush, hush, Dr. Margrove urged. One such scene as this must have more permanent ill effect than days of confinement. Come, Farrell, you had better leave the room, as I must insist on quiet for my patient. Let him keep quiet, then, Tom said, as he turned from the room, and a harder job man never had than he finds it this day. With a look of intense scorn at the reclining form with the convulsed face, Farrell shot this bolt and went out. "'Tom, you're very hard on the crather,' Mrs. Turnbull said, as she followed him with the always-ready tears rolling over her worn face. "'You ought to be making allowance for him, Tom. A poor man lying a helpless cripple, maybe for his life.' "'You're a fool for yourself, mother,' Farrell said shortly. But when he met the faded and pleading eyes, his own softened. The only excuse I have, mother, is that I think this man is a rogue and a swindler in every way, and I'm determined to watch his doings. And now, see here, mother, out of this house I don't sleep one night until he leaves it. It may be long or it may be short, but here I'll be to see that nothing happens to you at all events. I've no faith in a bone of Turnbull's body or a beat of his black heart, so make me up a bed here on the settle and I'll come over as soon as the sheep are hurdled and the supper over at home. A look of relief came into the woman's face, yet she hesitated and looked fearfully towards the inner room. I'll be glad, God knows, Tom, but he won't like it. I don't care. What can he do? He can order me not to let you inside. And I can order him outside. Oh, Tom, he promised me you wouldn't tell him, yet a while, at all events nor will i unless he drives me to it but do you think i'd be prevented of my father's roof for the likes of him no and heaven send that i've not done wrong in giving you such a promise at all here's the doctor coming out mind i'll be back about ten if you're in bed don't get up just leave the kitchen door on the latch bridget shouted the irritated suppositious owner of cahirkenveldt as the sound of the visitor's horse's hoofs were dying in the distance bridget come here i say faith paul i believe you're better see now how you raised your hand i didn't the pillow fell from under it come here and settle it what was that beauty of a son of yours saying to you out there by yourselves tom farrell is a good son at all events the mother returned bridling into something of her old aggressiveness with the courage imparted in the knowledge that tom was to protect her every night henceforth a better never put foot in a boot what was he saying, is it? Well, he was only telling me that from this out he'll sleep every night at Cahirkenveld. Are you mad, woman? Mad? For what? Is it because my son thinks fit to sleep in the place and look after me? And for why shouldn't he? Because I say he shall not, that's why. You seem to forget, fool, that Tom Farrell is not master here, and never will be. I am boss now, ma'am. There's where you're mistaken, Paul. At last, I'm alive yet and if I wasn't, well, the Lord is above all. Turnbull had stared at her as she spoke, doubtless wondering at the deceived woman's courage to beard him so, even in defence of her son. But as she alluded to her life interest in Cahirkenveld, such an evil smile distorted his lips as might have been worn by Satan himself. Just at that moment, however, the man Clark appeared at the door, and Mrs. Turnbull gladly escaped to the kitchen, as she was accustomed to do at the arrival of her husband's favourite. 
Clark was an undersized, low-browed man, with a deep chest and strong muscles, but he had the slow slouching air of one who had an objection to activity of any sort, and the sharp suspicious eye of a man who saw beneath the surface of things, and was shrewd enough to follow his own interest safely through them. He drew a chair close to Turnbull, and, in a low tone, began to give him an account of some business he had been transacting on his behalf. It was strange, the woman thought, that in the midst of their conversation Clark should break into coarse peals of vulgar laughter, unmindful, for a time, of the oaths of the invalid at his folly. "'I can't help it, Turnbull. For the life of me, I can't help it. Talking of you lying there like a helpless log, and asking me to do this little job for you, is too good. No siree. There's my share, and what I said I'd do to the creek. In the thing itself, I wouldn't have a hand if you gave me six times what I've got your signature for.' and he placed a small file in Turnbull's hand. "'You're a fine mate,' Turnbull said bitterly, as he hastily hid the file amongst his pillows. "'God forbid I'd be your mate, or any man's mate in the like,' was the retort. "'And you may as well make up your mind at once, for I tell you plainly, I'll not be within twenty miles of Cahirconvelt when it's done. I set a value on my own neck if you don't. Curse it, man, there's no risk in it as I've planned it. I'm glad of it for your sake, Paul, but I'm not partial to such things, even at a distance, so I'm off to praise be for oats, and a loud sarcastic laugh gave point to his words. Well, be it so, cried Turnbull decisively. Farrell won't be here till after ten. At nine, do you be at the spot. Don't fail. No fear, and I'll be on my way to praise be the same time. I'll take the cross-road to the cross-panel and sleep at Conway's. I wish you could provide as good an alibi, Paul, he added, with a leer at the helpless man on the couch. But, ha, ha, what am I thinking of, and you paralysed? Good evening, Mrs. Turnbull. What does the doctor say today? Pretty much the same, Clark, replied the unconscious woman, who had just returned to the apartment. In a day or two more he'll know better. "'and there's a great Melbourne doctor coming up to his place "'he's going to bring to see Paul. "'Oh, with the help of God, he'll be all right.' "'Shut your mouth, you old fool!' exclaimed the invalid. "'Didn't I tell you that no more doctors will come near me? "'Be off out of that and bring here pen and ink. "'I want you to write a line for me. "'Clark's going in to praise me.' "'Obediently the simple woman brought the necessary materials, "'while Clark and her ill-tempered husband exchanged a few more words.' Then, as the man left, she seated herself, pen in hand, and awaited instructions. "'Write, dear Tom,' dictated Turnbull, and with great pains and ill success, Mrs. Turnbull scrawled, "'Dear Tom,' across her page of notepaper, thinking all the time of her own good son. But alas, little dreaming when and how her Tom's eyes would light on the rudely formed letters. "'Forgive me for what I've done.' for I can't stand this life any longer. God bless you when I'm gone. My lord, what's that you're making me write? The Amanusis almost shrieked as she sat bolt upright and stared at Turnbull with terror in her eyes. It isn't thinking of making away with yourself, you are? The devil take all fools of women. Look at the blot you've put on it now. Hand it here till I see it. Pah, that scrawl isn't fit to send anyone and he pushed the paper contemptuously down with his hand as he spoke. "'See that now, Paul!' the poor creature cried triumphantly. "'I knew you had the strength in that arm yet. Please the Lord, you'll be all right again soon. But sure, I'll write another letter. Only you frightened me.' "'No, let him write it himself. He can write it as well as that anyway.' "'Oh, it's for Clark. What a fright you gave me, Paul, ashore!' and Paula Shaw ground his teeth as she began to enlarge on the subject of his recovering hand and arm. "'Aye, it's me. I must be off, Turnbull, or I won't reach Praisby before the storm breaks. Hark!' Thunder was beginning to roll and mutter in the distance as the evening approached, and Mrs. Turnbull tried to persuade Clark of the folly he should be guilty of in going a journey at that late hour, with the prospect of a wet night before him, but he was determined. "'If it should be raining hard about nine o'clock, I'll stop at Smith's,' he said significantly to Turnbull, as he was leaving the room, and turning his sallow face toward the window, through which he could see the low, gathering black clouds, 
the invalid scanned their threats with a scowling brow and murmured words of which only himself knew the terrible meaning they kept early hours at Cahirkenveldt, and it was barely eight when the poor woman, who had forfeited so much by her silly marriage, paused by the couch to arrange Turnbull's pillows and covering, and generally attend to his wants, ere she retired for the night. "'Faith, I'm sorry you're so bent on lavin' your clothes on, Paul,' she said. "'For how can you sleep aisy at all that way? But plaise God, you'll be able to take to your own bed in a couple of days more. Are you sure there's nothing else now?' "'Nothing, nothing, only go,' was the irritable answer. "'And for my sake, get to bed as quick as you can, and keep your tongue quiet. Don't touch me,' as she was stooping to kiss him. "'For mercy's sake, don't touch me!' And he unconsciously lifted one vigorous hand to push her off from his side. She laughed a low, pleasant laugh as she said, "'And indeed, Paul, darling, I'd rather feel the strength of that push than a dozen kisses. Well, good-night ashore.' I'll not forget to say a prayer for you, anyway. A prayer? Ay, he needed it. As he reclined on his couch with his awful face toward the door of his wife's bedroom, his heart was beating so quickly that great lumps seemed to rise in his throat and choke him. Every movement of the woman he watched with straining eyes made him shudder in spite of himself. Yet a strange fascination held his gaze on every turn of her hand, while the sound of her foot, softly, though she made it fall, was louder than the growing thunder in his ear. A lamp stood behind him on a small table, but it was lowered, and a heavy shade drooped over it. So, as Mrs. Turnbull was dependent on this light alone for assistance in preparing for rest, the bedroom was in such deep shadow that the watcher was barely able to detect the movements in which he had such an apparent interest. The time seemed to him interminable, yet scarcely five minutes had elapsed ere Mrs. Turnbull knelt by her bedside to perform her nightly orisons. She was as yet divested of none of her usual attire, only the white linen cap under which the grey hair was drawn intimated an intention of rest. For over twenty years the poor woman had knelt in that one spot for her faithful prayers, and it was there, on her knees, that her first realisation of rest after day's labour had always met her on the threshold of the night, as it were. And on this night, especially her first ave, was murmured in a sigh of content. But why was it that her mind would wander away from her prayers to the memory of old happy days with those that were gone? As through the gathering tears her gaze rested on the familiar cover and pillows, why was it that it was the faces of her dead husband and children she saw upon them, and not the face of the living Paul Turnbull's? So apparently real were these faces, and so vivid her memories of them, that it seemed as though she had but to put her hand out to lay it on the faded cheeks of her dead darlings, until all at once the real memory of her son Tom washed them all out and left himself her beloved and sole idol, until his place had been usurped temporarily by the false Turnbull, whose eyes were now bent upon her with the lurid fire of a satanic influence burning them dry. Now at last she saw and recognised her own folly, and this man's utter and selfish worthlessness, and saw her treason to her old loves in its true light, while her face fell upon her clasped hands as she wept. "'Forgive me, my darling boy,' she cried inwardly, "'and may the living God forgive me too, and bless you, Tom, darling of my heart.' Turnbull lay and watched, and as he watched the muscles of his limbs grew rigid. Strange to say, those limp and helpless limbs gathered themselves for a spring, and he sat erect with his long fingers gripping into the arms of the chair like a vice. He saw the dropping tears and the sad gaze at the empty bed, and he saw the droop of the bowed head as it was lowered to the hiding hands, and, at last, seemed to drop sideways and helpless as all volition left the woman's form as it slipped to the floor. She felt it, too, for only one moment, as the shadow of death seemed to close around her senses and shut her out with a shadowy veil for ever from earth. One or two gasps she gave, one or two vain struggles to grasp the bedclothes she made with her unreliable hands, and then her spirits glided into eternity as her body sank to the floor of her chamber of death. The beads which had been clasped in her left hand fell against her breast and became entangled in a hook of the half-open dress its simple silver cross glittering like a distant star in the rays of the shaded lamp behind the paralysed man. Tom Farrell was detained at home that night, 
much later than he had intended, by the breaking of such a storm as years before had not witnessed. It was fully eleven, ere, as the parting thunder was dying in the distance, he started to reach Cahirkinvault. There had been such a furious downfall of rain that the creek was flooded, and roared along its bed with a wild and dangerous violence that undermined its banks, and carried uprooted trees in its surge. But Tom had not to cross its bed, and as the moon broke coldly from the wild dark clouds, she lighted his way toward his mother's home. Once the track led him so close to a bend of the creek that the branches, growing low on the banks, swept his face like a cold wet hand and as he tightened the bridle to draw his horse away from the disagreeable objects, a something seemed to be swept from the foliage, and slip, with a rattle, over the pommel of his saddle to the grass beneath his horse's feet. He saw something gleam in the faint moonlight, too, and paused in wonder as he tried to see the object which had fallen under the shadow of the bushes, but vainly, and he rode on in uneasy speculation as to what could have been, for Farrell, as an Irishman, was not devoid of the superstitious fears of his countrymen, for the indulgence of which the lateness of the hour and the mooning sounds of dying wind and rushing water were at least a faint excuse. Knowing the place so well as he did, Tom had no difficulty in stabling his horse without disturbing anyone, or in reaching the back entrance which his mother had left open for him. On the rough sofa in the kitchen, too, he found a comfortable couch spread for him and he was able to see it quite distinctly by the light which crept from the room in which Turnbull lay, through the open door between the two apartments. Farrell did not, however, lie down before he had glanced into the parlour, and seen Turnbull, with closed eyes and awfully white face, apparently asleep. Could he have seen the shuddering of those apparently closed lids, or heard the fierce thuds of the hard-beating heart beneath them, he might not so readily have rejoiced that all was quiet in his poor mother's chamber. He did observe that the door between the quiet sleeper's room and the parlour occupied by Turnbull was closed, and he felt glad that for once the poor mother would get rest from under the baleful watch of the suspected invalid. Tom did not fall asleep readily. The silence of the house seemed oppressive to him. The steady tick of the remorseless clock sounded louder and louder as the minutes lengthened. He found himself growing nervous, and remembered with a strange persistence his mother's remark about her fancying there was a corpse in the house. Indeed, to him it appeared as if the stillness was abnormal, and he would have been glad to hear even the squeak of a mouse. All at once, however, as he was trying to reason himself out of such foolishness, the stillness was broken by a shout of such awfully intense and desperate terror that as he sprang from the sofa his own blood seemed curdling in his veins. Farrell! Farrell, are you there? Come in and break the door! Oh, Lord! The voice was Turnbull's and as Tom darted into the room, he lay among his pillows panting for breath, and with his fearfully distended eyeballs flaming with terror, he was gripping the clothes with clammy, trembling fingers, but Tom Farrell could not see that, as the hands were hidden, but he saw the white, damp face and the flaring eyes fixed on some object which was not himself. "'In the name of charity, what's the matter with you, Paul Turnbull? Are you mad or worse?' The voice exerted a powerful influence on him addressed. He closed his eyes for a moment, with a fierce effort, and shuddered from head to foot. "'I've been dreaming, I think,' he said. "'And when I opened my eyes, I fancied I saw your mother standing there, just where you are. And she is there,' he added. "'She's touching you.' He stopped himself then, with a strong attempt at calmness, as he spoke again. "'For God's sake, Tom Farrell, open the door and see if she is asleep, or is there something wrong?' As he was speaking, the strangest feeling came over Tom. He looked around him and saw nothing, yet he was conscious as of the contact of a tangible body. A cold hand appeared to rest for a moment on his, lovingly, and yet with a warning in its pressure. And when it was removed, he darted to the door of the bedroom and opened it. The light from the lamp, which Turnbull had raised, fully illuminated the room, and, at the first glance, he saw it was empty. "'Where is my mother?' he cried, turning angrily toward the man on the couch. "'Isn't she there? I don't know. Don't I tell you I saw her in this room just now? I don't understand it. I wish you'd hand me a drink, Farrell.' With a look of intense scorn, the alarmed son turned from him, and, seizing the lamp, instituted a close search of the homestead. It was a vain one, though he left no corner unvisited. And when he returned to the parlour, he found Turnbull drawing the blankets from the haggard face they had hidden during his absence, 
and heard as the voice of a dying man the weak pleading words of the cowardly wretch for god's sake don't leave me here again i won't be left send john martin here martin martin and he shouted until one of the now thoroughly aroused household came at the call of him he supposed to be now entire master of Cahirkenveldt. Whatever might have been the suspicions aroused in Farrell's mind by this strange conduct, he uttered no word of them at that time. But, passing again into his mother's room, he made a careful examination of the undisturbed bed and the few indicating articles of the late presence of the lost woman. Now, for the first time, he observed that the window was open, and a strong damp breeze flapping the blind to and fro, and then he suddenly caught sight of a bit of white paper with written characters upon it, lying on the white bed cover, and indeed on the very spot where the grey head of the missing woman had rested so short a time before. His strong hand trembled as he raised it, and his face paled as he recognised his mother's writing, and read the words apparently addressed to himself. Dear Tom, forgive me for what I have done, for I can't stand this life any longer. God bless you when I'm gone. The words seemed to blur themselves before the poor fellow's eyes as he read the deceiving words, and it was in his heart to go out and smite with one revenging blow the black life out of the man whose selfishness and ill words had driven a poor woman to what this awful paper pointed at. But he crushed back the temptation, determined to bide his time. Soon every man on the station, save the one Turnbull's command chained to his side, was out searching for the lost mistress of Cahirkenveldt until the breaking of another fierce storm rendered further search as impossible as futile. No one might envy the wretched hours passed by the distracted son in the deserted home of his mother, as he awaited the passing of a wild storm and the tardy break of day. He sat by the side of his mother's bed, and, with his elbows on his knees, watched every shade in the dark face of Paul Turnbull. That the latter was undergoing an almost martyrdom under Farrell's searching and suspicious watch, was evident in the restless eyes that feigned not to observe a look that was driving him almost mad, and in his determined attempts to move his head so that his face should be averted. Outside the wind tore through the bush, as though fiends rode upon its pinions, and the roar of the creek, down which a torrent rushed, carrying destruction with it, sounded like the voice of many thunders. Great sheets of wind-blown rain dashed, too, at intervals against the roof and window, and the old house shook and groaned in the blast like a living thing in agonised terror. Farrell sat through it all with the rigidity of a statue. Only when grey morning broke quietly after the terrible night, he rose and went out silently. Having aroused all the men available, and recommenced a search, in which his mother's few lines had left but little hope, Farrell himself re-examined every spot of ground between the bedroom window and the nearest point at which the bank of the creek could be gained. It was impossible not to draw the conclusion that, in all probability, the desperate and disappointed woman had crept through the window from the fact of its having been found open, but the heavy rain would have totally obliterated much more evident tracks than the poor woman would have been likely to leave behind her, and not a trace could be discovered. Examining the ground, foot by foot, he at last reached the bushes against which he had almost ridden the previous night and all at once he remembered the object that had seemed to fall from those branches to his pommel and thence to the ground, and he paused to examine the locality. The spot was not far from the homestead, and between the latter and the creek, which here took such a sudden bend that the heavy flood water was sweeping against the opposing point with a strong and undermining force. Many previous floods had undermined this high bank, and in one place a huge and half-uprooted tree hung over the boiling water that swayed its limp and broken branches to and fro with a helpless and melancholy movement behind the half-exposed root of this great tree was a huge chasm worn deeper and deeper by the constant winter drip and drainage of the higher land as it found its way downward to the creek and in this lonely spot it was that tom farrell lifted from the damp grass the object that had fallen across him the night before it was a well-known one, the rosary upon which he had seen his poor mother tell her prayers from his earliest boyhood. A helpless despair fell over the strong man as he lifted the beads and looked at the merciless surging water. What hope could he have now, save that miles away her broken body might be recovered to share, even so, his father's grave? But even amid the ineffable pity and grief he felt for the lost woman's fate, nay, indeed, perhaps because of it, 
his feelings of hate and detestation for Paul Turnbull became intensified until his breast boiled with a rage that threatened to consume him. A wild wave of blood reddened his very forehead, and he clutched the rosary with words that ill became the contact of its simple crucifix. It was well that at this moment Dr. Margrove made his appearance, riding toward the station at his usual steady pace. Farrell stepped out and joined him, and astonished the gentleman by an intimation of his mother's suspected fate. "'Yes,' he cried, "'and if it wasn't that the villain who drove her to this is helpless hand and foot, I'd say it was he that murdered her in spite of her own written words. She was the last woman in the world to do the like, Doctor, if she hadn't been driven mad.' Dr. Margrove's face grew more strangely serious than even the sad circumstances seemed to warrant, as he listened to Farrell's words and looked at the sheet of notepaper handed to him. "'And however it goes,' Farrell went on excitedly, "'in my father's house that man does not stop another night. No one but myself knows how hard it is for me to keep my hands off him, and if he hasn't spilt my poor unfortunate mother's blood, it's his deeds that made her spill it herself. Out he goes this day, doctor, if he had to be carried on a stretcher.' are you quite certain that this is your mother's writing tom as certain as one can be of anything they didn't see done but what do you mean and why do you look so strange you have something on your mind that you are afraid to tell me dr margrove i have tom i have had some strange suspicions for several days and i wish to goodness i had imparted them to you as things have turned out but how could i guess such an awful tragedy as this i had made up my mind before coming this morning to have a thorough understanding with Turnbull today, and now I am more than ever bent upon it. Let us go on up to the house, Farrell. What did the man Turnbull read in the faces of these two men that made his heart almost cease to beat, and the blood to stand cold in his veins? That of Farrell was white as the face of a man in a fierce agony of helpless passion, that of Dr. Margrove, solemn and awful as the face of a judge who dons the black cap to give a death sentence. He was reclining as before, with the coverings of the chair unruffled over his limbs, but those limbs trembled under the covering, and the fact did not escape the doctor's professional eye. Farrell strode to the front, and with a low, concentrated voice demanded, "'Paul Turnbull, what have you done with my mother?' "'Me!' It was a gasp rather than a word, for there was a grip of fear like the grip of death at his heart. "'It is a cowardly act.' but one well becoming you, Tom Farrell, to ask a helpless man that, will nothing but my life satisfy you, because I am your mother's heir? You are nothing lawful. You are a murderer in God's sight, and man will see it. Helpless? Where are you helpless? Turnbull turned a rigid, appealing look to the doctor. Do you hear what this fool is accusing me of, doctor? At all events, you can deny that. I'm sorry to say I cannot, Turnbull, Dr. Margrove said. I have for days been suspicious that you were malingering, and my only doubt was the fact that you could have no possible end to serve with such a pretense. God forgive me if I wrong you, but my suspicion now of your purpose is a frightful one. They are not suspicions, they are certainties. Look at his coward's face with the murderer's fear on it. Helpless, yes, with the horror of his own deeds. What have you done with my mother, Paul Turnbull? "'I have no one to protect from me from a bully, and the quack he is bribed,' stammered Turnbull. "'I married your mother lawfully, as you know, and the disappointment has driven you mad. "'It is hard for you to see me, Master of Cahirkenvelt, but I am, and I'll let you know it. "'Dan, Rasper, Middleton, come in here and turn out these wretches.' He had raised himself now, and with a countenance so ash-like as to render all more terrible the wild terror of his bloodshot eyes, was shouting to the men he knew were about the homestead and aware of his position in it. Already the unusual disturbance had drawn several nearer to the sitting-room, and the voice of Turnbull soon brought half a dozen faces crowding around its door and trying to press forward so as to see the cause of the commotion. "'It's well you've come,' said Farrell, "'as what I have to say will be the sooner known. Ye all know that this man married my poor mother for the station of Cahirkenvelt, that never will be his. Well,' Now he has murdered her, and for what? Look at the face of the wretch as he hears me say his crime was in vain. My poor father, foreseeing that some villain might take advantage of the poor woman's soft heart, turned the station over to me if she married. And now, see what he has gained by his crime. Villain! Stand on your feet and confess. What have you done with my mother? 
as the last sentence was uttered tom seized the wretch on the couch and dragged him from his support and covering turnbull seemed as a child in the bereaved son's hands and farrell's muscles were as iron while he shook the trembling wretch to his limp limbs in vain he feigned they would not support him tom's grip on his collar was hard and firm he was not permitted to slide to the floor as he was evidently trying to do god gave you strength and you used it to murder an innocent woman farrell shouted monster what have you done with my mother all at once as he spoke the limbs of paul turnbull stiffened and he stood erect on the floor the expression of his face was so terrible in its awful horror that tom loosened his grip from his neck and wonderingly followed with his own eyes those of the horrified man whose arms were raised rigidly as though to ward off the haunting apparition he beheld his eyes were directed toward the doorway and there farrell beheld the form of his mother dimly outlined against the grass and trees of the scene outside her face was of the dead pale and awful and with a dread solemnity of look that was never worn by living countenance she was dressed in her usual attire and her grey hair hung loose from her neck and dripped as though with heavy rain tom's lips trembled as he stretched out his hands toward the shadow imploringly but as he would have spoken it glided into the open air gradually disappearing as it were toward the creek until it had disappeared turnbull stood erect then he fell like a log upon the floor dan markham tie the coward hand and foot said farrell i have sent for the police and you will soon be relieved of the charge all you others follow me my poor mother has led the way and he was obeyed not over willingly for every man of them had seen the shade of his late mistress here said tom to the doctor on this spot i found the rosary and see just here in the bushes it looks as if some person had pushed their way with difficulty if the murdering wretch murdered her first and then threw her into that strong current where shall we find even her poor remains they were standing near the point of land which i have already described where the flooded creek took a strong bend and beat its swollen waters under a huge and half-uprooted tree gazing wistfully at the noisy and swirling water that caught the branches of the trees like wisps of weed and tossed them hither and thither helplessly tom saw the tree give a heavy lurch that surrendered its torn tresses farther on the rushing surface of the flood and then it lost the grasp of years on the wet bank and fell with a crash and splash into the creek noiselessly after it the red clay of the undermined bank slipped softly and with it came half hidden a still form in brown wincey and with grey hair stained with rain and soil clinging on a sad white face that face and form was seen thus but a moment the next it was swirled in by the greedy waters entangled by the long tresses of the ankylous tree and swept down the stream in a tangle of leaves and water there was but one exclamation of horror as the men led by farrell rushed down to a narrow angle to intercept and rescue the body of the murdered woman the man clark was riding leisurely home from praesby and his face was shadowed as it had rarely been as he neared cahirkenveldt had the man after all some remains of a conscience and had it awakened during that sleepless night he had passed in fancying the deed to be done during its desecrated hours however that may have been when he met a body of men carrying a sad and dripping corpse with grey hair on a litter of branches the head of which was borne by an almost broken-hearted son of the dead he felt as though he would have given years of his own life to recall the one last night of it he gave evidence against turnbull at his trial and so implicated himself though not sufficiently to lay himself open to punishment heavy enough for his deserts the plot had been skilfully laid by turnbull for obtaining as he expected the entire control of a fine property untrammelled by the burden of a poor silly old woman his fall and loss of vigour had been all a pretence to avert suspicion and mrs turnbull's death had been accomplished by means of the phial of chloroform procured for him by clark when the poor woman had uttered her last prayer on her rosary that night she had laid her head on a spot of cover lid saturated with chloroform and it was a villain's strong arms that carried her helpless body to the deep chasm behind the old tree root near the creek and its fall had disinterred her to this day they speak at praiseby of turnbull's cowardly expiation of his crime and of the apparition and lost rosary that guided tom farrell to his mother's grave the rosary had in all probability 
caught in the branches as Turnbull dragged his awful burden through them, but who can account for the appearance of the dead woman's spirit in the home she had loved and lost? End of story. End of stories from the detective's album by Waif Wonder, also known as Mary Fortune.